0: Welcome to the Swamp Flex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede.
1: Hi, I am Boomer.
2: Hi, I'm Allie.
0: And we are recording in three separate locations, uh, joining forces over the internet to talk about movies we've been watching over the past couple weeks. Um, I actually don't have a lot of preamble this episode, so if anyone wants to just jump in and talk about movies they've been seeing since the last time we talked, go for it.
1: Well, I will go ahead and say that I really only watched three movies since we last met. I have watched seasons two of both Barry and Fargo since we last spoke. Um, That has taken up most of my watching time. And also, I watched our movie of the month that just went to print today, our discussion, uh, Tati Danielle, and I still have, I think, many, many, many thoughts about it that I would like to share but I guess you know we'll we'll try and keep that concise. I really loved it.
0: I think it's worth describing what it is because it is a pretty obscure film. Um, it's actually like hard to access in America on a like Region One physical release. We had to get it through the library. So if you want to give a quick rundown of what even happens in the movie, that would be helpful.
1: Uh, Tati Danielle is a 1990 French film about a horrible, miserable old woman who. Purposefully ruins the lives of everyone around her through uh, aggression and passive aggression. Uh, She seeks to do nothing but cause harmful chaos to every entity that she encounters. And despite the fact that I find her completely unsympathetic, although I'm somewhat alone in that, I still actually found it very funny, even though her victims are, are to me very innocent.
0: Oh yeah we we laughed the entire time we watched it. It's so it's funny, a very funny movie,
1: but I you know I personally did not find her very sympathetic at all. I think that there were some other people who felt differently based upon the round table, and you and I kind of texted about this briefly, which is that I think that's a little bit of like COVID thinking that's being like backwards projected onto this movie, but I you know I also don't think that my interpretation of what we see, which is that to to me, she seems like a person who's always been awful, always been horrible. Um, And especially when you think about the fact that like the only person that she ever tolerated or loved has been dead for like 50 years and probably, you know, was much older than her to begin with is how I interpret her sort of uh, self and her being before the movie. You know, I think that she was always kind of a, a miserable bitty, even she if she wasn't little and old, but she's very she's very funny she um you know there are things that she does that are objectively horrifying. She ruins the reputation of her family uh by smearing herself with her own fecal matter and eating dog food and setting their house on fire so that it looks like they've committed elder abuse. Um, she abandons an elderly dog and she sets up a situation in which her only companion who is her sort of housemaid um, quote unquote accidentally <laughs> falls to her death. It's like a pratfall
0: murder. Yeah. <laughs> it's very early in the film. Uh, just in case you do have like a tinkling of sympathy, the movie uh, undercuts it at every chance it gets, which I I think the disconnect is like, what I was saying about sympathizing with her was just, I found the circumstances of how the elderly fit into society at large is like grim. And the movie kind of touches on all of the like things you would feel guilty about with that. Like the way that people are just sort of shuffled off into homes or like left to take care of each other and like left in isolation. And the movie like uses all of those things that normally would garner sympathy for an o- older person right down to like her being slapped by the one woman who actually like cares about her. Uh, like there's a lot that it brings up that is like grim circumstantial stuff that makes it for like a, a tough sit. But at the same time, it is like a comedy where every single thing she does is like wildly over the top and purely cruel. So it's almost like she's rebelling against victimhood. Like the, the circumstances are real But her reaction to it is so outsized and misbehaved that um, you kind of have to find it funny as like a transgression, even though what she's doing is awful. Uh, So I don't know. Maybe I was reading more into how like the real life circumstances of someone like that would be grim not really thinking about her specifically, just more about like how old people are treated and how fun it is to watch someone um not sit there and take it like to actively terrorize everyone around her uh, was kind of fun in like a transgressive way. But I also wrote a much shorter um contribution to the conversation than you did. And I, I was, I was using a lot of shorthand. I think I wrote like two little paragraphs. I um, mean, you, you went much deeper into um a reading of her character, which I think was like a hundred percent accurate.
1: I, just had so many things that I wanted to talk about it. It was like <laughs> a like an onion, you know, that just uh, layers upon layers upon layers, and all of them so bitter, so sour, yeah. And I loved it.
0: It's a great film.
1: Um, and then I also watched a movie from my childhood that I is very difficult to find, possibly even more difficult to find than Tati Danielle, which was Tales from Muppet Land: The Frog Prince. Um, I have repeatedly talked about my love of the Muppets on this podcast and in real life. I love the Muppets um very, very much. When I was a kid, uh, this used to be on rotation on either the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon. One of those in 1992, 1993, when my family did not have access to those stations, but it seemed like it was on every time that i went to my grandparents' house when they had those stations like a lot of the tales from muppet land or other like non theatrical muppet movies of the 70s and 80s it's sort of a movie in which the muppets are playing characters not movies in which uh they're playing themselves like you know in muppets take manhattan it is kermit who you know and piggy who are you know trying to take uh, Manhattan. It's, <laughs> but in this one, you know, Kermit is sort of the narrator and he meets a frog that is played by Robin, who is <laughs> within the Muppet's canon, Kermit's nephew um but basically it is a telling of the frog prince sort of uh um, I
2: remember this like you're tale. digging up so many memories right now
1: <laughs> I really it's it's fun it's cute I I don't think that it holds up completely the way that you know it didn't it wasn't as good as all of my memories but as something that I had been trying to find again for like almost 30 years uh it's very cute uh there are more songs than I remember uh, one of the things that I remembered very clearly was that in sort of a departure from the normal like frog prince story, the princess herself, she is unable to speak in a way that other people can understand her. But really, it's just that she has like Wolseyisms. Uh So, for instance, in order for her to be freed from this curse, uh, she has to break the Ball in the handle of the witch's cane. But like when she's trying to say it, you know, it's like uh, cake the hall in the brandle of the witch's brain. So it's it's really something where it's like <laughs> as a kid, clearly you can understand what she's actually trying to say, but it's funnier because the characters around her, most of whom are Muppets. Like she's a human woman with a with a Muppet <laughs> King father. It's easy enough for a child to understand, but that just makes it funnier that, like, the people within this world can't understand her. Um, But, yeah, if you can find that through, I don't know, semi-legal sources, give that a try. And then, finally, I saw a movie that I was a little bit surprised that we did not have copy on on the website, so I might be working on that soon. But I saw Licorice Pizza.
0: Oh, yeah. I, uh, I am doing a larger roundup of Oscar nominated movies that I will be doing like kind of one paragraph reviews of, I am not going deep on any of them. So please write up a full review of it. Cause I I actually had really conflicted opinions about it myself. Um, And I could go long on it, but I just haven't dedicated the time to doing so. Is it because
1: of the age gap stuff?
0: No, not necessarily. Um, It is about the dynamic between the two main characters. I think if you view the movie one way where it is, a comedy about how charming this teenage idiot (laughs) brat like self-confidence is then I found the movie very gross but if you look at it the other way where it's a 20-something loser who keeps um, regressing back into teenagehood instead of like growing up I found it very relatable and sad so I like Mm. it as like a sad 20-something movie I don't necessarily enjoy it as a teen boy summer comedy and i don't know which one is supposed to be (laughs) the intent and maybe it's both because the movie splits the time between the two of them like 50 50 so i'm really conflicted about it
1: yeah i i don't really think about it either way so maybe it's not supposed to be either or or what i think of it as which is it's sort of like a snapshot of like a summer The snapshot of a year, you know, and it doesn't really have a very standard three act plot structure, which I think that if it did have that and it involved these characters, it would land firmly on one side or the other. But really, it just kind of goes back and forth between them over the course of this period of time. I didn't find the young Hoffman to be as um, abrasive as it sounds like you did. Or maybe a bracelet. It made me question word.
0: why I don't like confidence in men <laughs>
3: <laughs> as characters.
1: There was something kind of charming about it to me. Where I, I get exactly what you're saying because I often can find a character type like this to be unlikable. I'm very much a don't get cocky kid kind of guy, I guess. Sometimes, whereas with this one particular character, I was like, I find I actually found him very charming and like personable and you know there was something about like this childhood power fantasy wish fulfillment where everywhere he went everyone knew his name that gives it sort of this element of surreality that made it work for me whereas if like everywhere he went he had acted like a big shot and everybody seemed annoyed by it or nobody knew who he was it was like i i would feel differently about it but because it is sort of just like, he's like uh, the Prez from you know the Sandman comics or whatever. He just really is that person. He really is that honest and earnest and endearing that to me it worked. And it especially made sense to me that uh, Alana would find something magnetic about this person who's so much younger than she is, but... You know, she spells it out at one point where she's like, you know, you're going to be able to be rich enough to retire in just a couple of years. But when I'm 30, I'll still be doing the same shitty job that I'm doing, essentially. And so there's something magnetic to her about this kid who, you know, is able to achieve these things that she can't through this like sheer force of this like having been lucky and you know sheer force of will where he just kind of seems like he he's like a weeble you know he wobbles but he doesn't go down no matter what happens he never really is defeated and it's rare that a character actually bounces back in a way where they refuse to be defeated and i don't find it obnoxious here i find it actually kind of it's that surreality like I was saying it's the it's the powerfulness of you know kind of no matter what happens he'll be fine and there's this sort of like a magic to that that worked for me personally
0: I don't know I was I really just had like a personal struggle with like why I found him so off-putting and uh whether or not that was intentional at all and it sounds like a lot of people find him just as charming as the characters in the movie do so it was like a, a personal short side of my part I, I really struggled with why I found one of them so relatable and the other one so gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was felt like it was more about um my brain than it was about what was on the screen, whatever conflict I was having there.
1: One of them is us, and one of them is the person we wish we could be. <laughs> or <Sure>. maybe not.
4: <laughs> yeah, um, close.
1: Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's all that I have seen. Allie, what have you been watching?
2: I kind of have been making an attempt to get just generally caught up on recent stuff. So I started by uh, watching uh, Del Toro's Nightmare Alley.
0: Also going to be on my Oscars roundup. Oh, okay. This is good stuff.
2: I thought it was all right. It's interesting to me that, you know, his most realistic movie is set in a carnival. (laughs) Because so often, you know, you watch Del Toro movies and it feels very, like curated and artificial is like and i love this about his movies like curated artificial like very much like almost like he's like playing dolls in a dollhouse especially you know if you think of like something like crimson peak but this one you know he made a noir you know uh it was good i mean you know it's still pretty uh actors are good i don't know it's got quite a cast (laughs) that's about as much as i can say about it like i wasn't wowed
0: i liked it i thought the uh carnival stretch in the first what hour of it is very good yeah and then the noir half was like not as good it's like he's remaking the wrong 40s movie i kind of wish he was remaking freaks which i guess was probably a 30s film but like instead you know we get this other movie that's you know good Yeah. And it made me want to go back and watch the original noir, but... Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the tide has kind of turned on him. Like, people are kind of tired of his shtick. Yeah. And I'm not tired yet.
2: I'm not either. (laughs) I still appreciated the visuals. Yeah, that's why I kind of wish it was more of his shtick. Like, I think that's my problem. I'm like, this isn't Del Toro enough for me.
0: The carnival bit felt in line with his usual thing. Yeah. Uh, He he does leave it a little bit. And I guess the consolation there is that um, Cate Blanchett, Looks amazing in those clothes and in that oh. lighting. Like oh, she's like she's perfectly suited amazing.
2: for it. Amazing, yes. She's so gorgeous in everything, but especially this. Ugh, oh. I think that's that was my main thing. Is like I am not tired of Del Toro shtick, and I probably won't be for a while. And so this feels like the least Del Toro of the movies by him I've seen. So I was like, eh, it's a good movie, but. I always expect something, I don't know, more. Something that you can kind of, like, lose yourself into his world building. Also, you know, on the, oh, uh, maybe I should actually watch some, like, recent movies that are Oscar nominated. I watched Encanto.
1: Oh, what did you think? What's your what's your tolerance level for Lin-Manuel Miranda?
2: I mean, I guess I I liked this more than any of the Hamilton songs I've heard, so there is that. So I guess maybe more tolerable than I thought I had. You know, I liked that, you know, there's this kid movie about how having magical powers and like between this and Frozen, how magic, having magical powers is kind of a nightmare. And, you know, I liked that just every so often they were just like pepper in some Spanish in the dialogue. And it's like, yes, let's force the kids to learn other languages. You know, I know all of this is just like a forced thing by Disney to conquer the world's audiences, but, you know, all right.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if either of you ever watched the TV show The 3%? No. Uh, It came out, I guess, probably four or five years ago. I watched the first two seasons with my roommate before I moved into this place, and that was about three years ago. And a third season did come out, but we were you know, planning to watch it together, and then COVID hit. It's a Brazilian sort of dystopian show about, you know, whenever Nicky told me that he had watched Squid Game, at that point in time, I had not seen it, but I had seen a lot of comparisons to 3%, and I asked him how similar it was, and he was like, yeah, pretty similar. It's uh, essentially about a group of people who live on a horrible, crime-ridden, resource-lacking mainland and sometime in the past uh, the founders of this new society on an island where everything is sort of you know people have want for nothing lack for nothing live basically in paradise in comparison to this hellhole on the mainland that there's an annual competition where people of a certain age get a chance to compete to go live on the island instead and it it's a very sort of YA novel concept, but that one had what my, what Nikki called, he said it was effortlessly Tumblr friendly (laughs) when talking about like, how it functioned you know sort of as something for people to watch and enjoy and i think that encanto is also that yeah like it's effortlessly tumblr friendly but not necessarily i would necessarily call that like a good thing because it's 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 almost it's sort of handling like the further i am from it you know because we talked about it when i saw it briefly Mm -hmm. um, you know some episodes ago that I agree with you that it is definitely doing some very good work, but it also feels very uh, virtue signaling, especially in light of like what's going on in Florida and the Disney corporations like attempts to distance itself from any need to take a moral stance about the criminalization of people to whom they have marketed themselves very heavily Mm -hmm. in recent years. So, it, you know, I think that it's a step in the right direction. But I, you know, it feels effortlessly Tumblr-friendly in sort of a virtue-signaling way to me the further I get from it. Yeah. But I also respect that it's not really a movie for me.
2: I was going to say, that's kind of how I have to look at these things. It's like, this isn't for me. And I don't know why, like, I know why I'm comparing it. And maybe this is, like, horrible. But, like, you know, if we're going to talk about... Disney movies that are aimed towards the Latin American world, I thought Coco was better because I feel like, ironically, though, Encanto is about like magic. Like Coco just felt more magical to me.
0: I really didn't like Coco when I saw it.
2: Aww, (laughs) aww, I like Coco. I felt like it
0: was teaching a lesson about how no matter how fucking shitty your family is, you're supposed to just put up with it.
2: I mean, that's kind (laughs) of what Encanto does too.
1: Yeah, Encanto also does. (laughs)
2: <laughs> to be fair, that is also what in- Encanto does.
0: I think it's okay to abandon your family and find a better one out there. That's my lesson to the children.
2: You know, the Swamp Flicks movie for children. We'll write it.
0: <laughs>
2: leave your family.
0: Even if they aren't that bad, leave them and see if you can find a better one. Yeah. And if not, then you can return. Shop you know, around. Give it a shot.
2: That's fair. And... Funny enough, of all of the movies I've watched in the time since we uh, last met up, the one that I enjoyed the most was on Britney's top list for the last year, The Woman in the Window.
0: (laughs) That is a white wine drunk movie.
2: I do not know why this movie is so maligned. I'm going to be honest. It is enjoyable. It's a
0: trashy airport novel kind of enjoyable.
2: Yeah, exactly. It is. And, you know, I always like watching movies that are trashy airport novel rather than reading them, unless they're a romance. But, yeah, I don't know. I thought it made some, like, cool like cinematic choices even when the narrative, like, slipped into lifetime territory. Like, like I said, I don't know why it's been maligned to the point of now we have a spoof series about it. I mean, other than like, are we talking about how mentally a woman can be mentally ill and also right? I don't know. Is that why? <laughs> Not sure.
0: I'm guessing that series brings in a lot of that post-Jillian Flynn type stuff. Yeah. Like the, the girl on the train and I don't mm. know. There's probably other titles that I should know off the top of my head. Yeah. But I feel like it's like using a whole milieu yeah. and then... Using that one for its title because it, it is such a like mouthful.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know the the spoof series is like the girl across the street from the woman, woman in the window. window? So yeah. It's even longer. But, you know, there's also that general misogynistic culture thing where like if something is purely marketed towards women, then it's like worthy to be mocked. Yeah. Like it's like easy to mock stuff like that. So it is questionable. Also, a funny thing about that show, though, is like a lot of people watched it not knowing it was a spoof. And just watched it thinking it was the genuine thing. Oh, man. The market's still out there whether or not you want to make fun of it.
2: Yeah. So I think out of everything I watched recently, that was the thing I enjoyed the most. Um, Which feels real weird since, you know, a lot of people hated it. And like you said, it's a very white wine drunk sort of movie. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you need those.
0: There's a scene where Amy Adams and Julianne Moore are sharing... Big glasses of white wine on Halloween night, mixing it with some pills. Pills. Yes. And it's like, what a perfect encapsulation of what this movie is made for.
2: (laughs) Yes. 100%. And then Julianne Moore draws a picture of her her and Amy Adams and the cat. The cat, who is so good. And that's one of my complaints is like, at some point in like the last third of the movie, Nobody, like, talks about the cat anymore. I'm like, where's the cat? I need to know that the cat is safe right now. They do reveal that the cat is safe, but it kind of bothered me because I needed to know where that cat was, like, at all times. And so I also watched, not related to getting caught up at all, the movie Dave Made a Maze. I don't know if either of y'all have seen it.
1: Oh, I haven't seen it. I it's, it was in my Netflix queue, and then it was off of Netflix, and then it moved to Tubi, and I have been meaning to watch it many years ago. <laughs> Nikki who I was just talking about. I tried to get him to watch it with me, and we made it about five minutes in. He was like, "This is just too twee for me," uh, and so I never really got to circle back around on it. But I'm very fascinated to hear what you uh, very excited to hear what you have to say.
2: I mean, to me, it felt a little like student film, bro. Like, all of the Mm. sets and art design, everything, amazing. Animation, stop-motion stuff, incredible. Everything else just felt very cringy, like, film, bro. Like, the writing, eh. Everything else, amazing.
0: I assumed it was a mumblecore comedy.
2: I wish. Uh,
0: So so to hear you (laughs) saying that it's, like, stop-motion and fantasy, that's honestly making me want to watch it more than...
2: Yeah, it is worth watching it for the spectacle. So basically the premise is this guy who starts a billion projects and never finishes them builds this cardboard maze in his living room while his girlfriend's out of town. And then she comes back and he's stuck in the maze. And then she and a bunch of friends go inside of the maze to rescue him. And it's full of like traps and there's like a minotaur that comes in it's pretty cool in a lot of ways but like in a lot of other ways it's
0: eh. sounds a little bit like that strawberry mansion movie i was just talking about yeah maybe not as good i don't know
2: yeah i mean i enjoyed it i i don't regret watching it i just think you know could have been better yeah it could have been better it reminded me of everyone i want to forget from film school in a lot of ways And I don't feel like a jerk saying that. So that's what I have been watching. Brandon, what have you been watching?
0: Well, I did do one piece of catching up with last year's movies, which I guess is kind of the grander theme of what we were just discussing. I I saw Ghostbusters Afterlife, which if you ask most people, there have been like three movies released in the last year. Spider-Man, Ghostbusters, and Batman. Um, So I saw one of those. (laughs) I honestly was kind of dreading it because I remember watching the trailers and there were like no jokes in it. It was like very serious like Stranger Things kind of revamp of the series into like this like dark reboot of what essentially is like a frat boy comedy from the 80s. Watching it, I actually found it more charming than I expected. And I was kind of right. The tone is not comedic. Um, It's like someone like misremembered that ghostbusters was a steven spielberg movie in his like et days (laughs) like uh tried to like recapture that magic of something that Mm. never was but i think if you are a child and you're watching it with your parents um again why are you listening to this show you should stop (laughs) (laughs) but i think a child would really appreciate that like 80s filmmaking style because it feels like a very good smart movie for children in a way that doesn't really get made anymore it's just as a bonding experience right next to them their parent is going to be like smiling and pointing at callbacks and easter eggs to bullshit that doesn't matter and doesn't belong in the movie like a twinkie will show up or there'll be like a fireman pole that's like completely unnecessary in this like barn on a farm Um, And it's, like, okay, so the kid is enjoying this, like, genuinely good children's movie that doesn't need all this, like, Ghostbusters stuff in it while their, like, parent is having this, like, really idiotic, vapid experience Um, at the same time um, enjoying, like, oh, I remember that right next to them. And it's, like, uh, just kind of sad that you can't have the smart kids movie without the, like, IP funding the bills. So, I don't know. It It was okay. But... Even it being okay, it was better than I expected. It didn't have one really cool ghost in it. Uh, they, they tried to update Slimer for modern times, and they made this really ugly tardigrade monster called Muncher that um, eats metal and shoots little shards back at you like bullets. <laughs> and it's one of those things that is like so ugly, it's cute. It reminded me a lot of Creech from Monster Trucks, who I hold near and dear to my heart. <laughs> so um, it had that going for it, too. It was fine. Uh, I watched one, a new movie from this year on Hulu that I think Boomer would enjoy called Fresh.
1: Oh, with Sebastian Stan. That was
2: uh, recommended to me recently as well. So
0: I'm going to sell it as a torture porn rom-com.
2: <laughs> I think
0: so maybe the, the only movie I could describe that way sincerely. And Sebastian Stan is allowed to chew a lot of scenery in it. He's a very handsome, charming man. And then um, very quickly turns that into an evil thing. The first 30 minutes are like pure rom-com where it's like one of those like Sundance style romantic comedies where like a 20 something is living this messy life in LA and like can't really get her love life together and goes on a series of like truly awful Tinder dates with guys named Chad who are awful scarves and uh, don't ask questions about her when talking. And then... You know, she meets Sebastian Stan, and they hit it off, and then 30 minutes in, the credits roll, like the opening credits, and the movie turns into a horror comedy with some really vicious gore and some really over-the-top villainy from him. Um, And I don't want to spoil exactly what happens in it, but uh, it's really cute and really cruel at the same time.
3: Okay. All
0: right. I think you would like it. I I don't know that much about Sebastian Stan, other than he would pop up on Gossip Girl every now and then.
1: Well, he is also in... New metal horror, new metal, new horror, new classic. The Covenant. Ugh, what is The Covenant? It's about the five boys with superpowers. It's like The Craft, but you know, dumber and sexier.
0: I genuinely have <laughs> never heard of that. Oh, like what? Once.
1: <laughs> oh, Brandon, it's very you.
0: I'm the exact demographic. How how has this completely gotten <laughs> by me?
1: I don't know. I don't know how how you're not aware of The Covenant, but um, it's very you. I think that as soon as we're done uh, talking tonight, you should get your hands on The Covenant. Um, I'm
0: adding it to the watch list right now.
1: (laughs) Oh my god. Well, if you haven't watched it by the next time, it's my turn to pick a movie. (laughs) That might be what we end up talking about. I I might force you over the barrel.
0: Well, I'm excited about that.
1: This is a movie in which these boys take this car apart and put it back together during an accident. And the blonde one shouts, Fuck Harry Potter! Wow. Uh, it's, it's so edgy. Um, at one point, two of the boys with witch powers are um, betting on what color a woman's underwear is, and then they make, like, a puff of wind, like, lift her skirt for a second. Um, it's super trashy. Gross. It's horribly gross. It's like a David D- Dekato movie, but with, like a ya novel adaptation budget it's basically like david decato's the brotherhood but made by someone who actually gave a shit about putting money into it even if they didn't give a shit about doing a final pass on the script
0: (laughs) well i am sold hopefully i sold you on fresh as well i think you would enjoy that
1: Right. I mean, hospitals are places
0: where we're born, where we die. I mean, they kind of cover the gamut. And um, this hospital in our story is also kind of, you know, perceived as being a little bit on the darker side. There's something suspicious going on here. At least that's what we think.
1: This week for the podcast, I had Brandon and Allie watch a movie called Fractured from 2019. And this is a bit of a departure from what we normally watch. Uh, I had not seen it before proposing it for this episode. But I did actually read a version of the script for this movie back in 2014. So five years before production, eight years ago now. And in fact, the script version that I read was still so early in the process that it's actually referred to as the Untitled Hospital Thriller. And the date on it is July 31st, 2007. So I thought it would be interesting for us to watch this movie, maybe talk a little bit about the script and my memories of reading this many years ago. And, you know, kind of maybe even talk about the process of like what happens to a movie and maybe the 12 years between when the script is written and when it finally uh, makes it to screens. Uh, Before we got started, I was telling everyone off mic about how excited I was to talk about this movie because I had a lot of notes. But I'm not going to say that that means that I think it's a great movie. I'm just excited (laughs) to talk about it. And when I said that, uh, there were reactions that I wasn't sure how to take them. So before we sort of get into uh, like a plot synopsis, how did you feel about it? Did you like it? Did you not like it?
2: I thought it was really dumb. (laughs) okay i don't think i liked it actually it kind of is like one of those movies that is like this is why twilight zone episodes are short because you can't extend this like big plot twist for this long and have it be anything more than kind of dumb
1: i want to talk about that plot twist and also share some things about um my memory
2: i mean it wasn't even that big a plot twist like they put everything there
1: yeah and i will say for our listening audience this is going to be a very spoiler heavy discussion
0: it has to be
2: mm-hmm.
1: this is purely a like netflix original movie kind of a middle of the afternoon you've got a queue full of stuff that you know you'd really have to pay attention to so maybe you want to put on something that you don't you can take a nap through this is not you know um citizen kane Um, which I know is a very cliche way to say that a movie is, you know, kind of whatever it is. We're not talking about an asylum level of like nonsense. This is very well made. It's well edited. It's well shot. It's just not a great movie by many metrics.
0: It's incredible just how much Netflix movies don't exist at all. Like, there's no reason to not spoil it because after being on Netflix for three weeks, a movie like this just sort of disappears. Like, I want to see a metric of the last time three people watched Fractured in a week's span before. (laughs) Like, what was the last time that happened? I can't imagine people are like Sam Worthington super freaks and are like firing this up every week on streaming. So like, by that metric... I expected this to be a total bore with like nothing to offer. And I found it surprisingly entertaining as a throwaway thriller. What is shocking about it is the director, his name's Brad Anderson. I don't think he's like, you know, an exceptional stylist or anything, but he delivered a pretty competent psychological thriller here, at least as far as just like keeping it entertaining. And he's had, Movies I've heard of before, like he directed Session 9 and The Machinist, the one where Christian Bale lost all that weight.
4: Oh,
2: like that's so funny because we kept comparing it to The Machinist. <laughs> really? <laughs> we were watching it, yeah.
0: What was the comparison point?
2: Oh, just like the idea of like this guy like going crazy and... Having right. that voice.
0: Okay, so you've heard of The Machinist. You may have even seen The I Machinist. I have
2: seen The Machinist, yeah.
0: But you will not have heard of Fractured because The Machinist played in a movie theater and like left an impression on culture. Yeah. And something from the same director, probably on a similar budget level, with a star who was in <laughs> the most successful... <laughs> action <laughs> flick of all time yeah <laughs> it's completely erased from like the cultural memory which I, I found fascinating like just going back and studying this as like a mainstream object that's meant to be forgotten uh i found yeah interesting as an exercise i think the movie's writing is very muddled it's doing two very distinct things that um i wish it had picked one or the other i have a preference into which one it's doing that i found more interesting than the other
1: yeah, I want to get we into We can get that into too. that.
0: But because it doesn't choose a lane, it ends up doing nothing in particular yeah. except creating a Sam Worthington acting showcase. And I found him surprisingly entertaining given how much weight is put on his shoulders. Like, he's not going to give you Nick Cage freak out. Um, if this was like a Soderbergh movie with like Matt Damon in it, um, it could have been incredible. <laughs> but, you know, oh, it's yeah, Sam Worthington yes. in a disposable Netflix movie. So lower your expectations, but based on that metric, I thought it was surprisingly okay.
2: <laughs> I found it entertaining I mean, and strange. I didn't think the acting was bad. I just thought the like the actors did the best with what they had to work with. And, you know, I like... Uh, Lily Rabe? No, Adwoa Ando, like the Jacobs, oh, yeah, the yeah. doctor. Because... Y'all, she is Lady Danbury in Bridgerton. I was like, oh, this makes me excited about the next season of Bridgerton. (laughs) So like, I liked watching her on screen and I thought she was great in it. Um, Also, it was nice to have a psychiatrist character that was like trying to be really sympathetic to this guy who's kind of losing it. You know, there were things that were good, but I think like you said, like it just gets so muddled that it's just like, I don't know.
0: I could not, for the life of me, remember the title of this movie for days. I was like, is it rejected? Is it retribution?
1: It's Untitled Hospital Thriller, Brandon.
0: (laughs) It still is untitled.
1: Um, I also, I think it's important to note that in 2007, which is when this script, that version that I have was dated and written, written and dated, there was a movie out in that same year called just Fracture with Anthony Hopkins and uh, Ryan Gosling. So that might have been the reason why it was untitled, because that is a title that I guess makes sense, but it's also kind of unmemorable. Yeah. Uh, For my part, I will say that Brad Anderson, as a director, directed, uh, it looks like 12 episodes of Fringe, and several of these are actually some major, important, well-beloved, great pieces of filmmaking, like In Which We Meet Mr. Jones, Uh, There's More Than One of Everything, Night of Desirable Objects, Entrada, and One Night in October, which I think is one of the best uh, short form uh, sci-fi stories that I've ever seen. So that's my contribution to the Brad Anderson as director conversation. I do want to circle back on The author, um, Mr. McElroy here. But I guess before we go any further, we should explain what the the plot of this movie is.
2: It's a hospital thriller.
1: (laughs) It's an untitled hospital thriller. Uh, Essentially, a man, his wife, and their young daughter, who is five or six, depending on uh, which script version you're watching or reading. Uh, There's an incident. They're, They're driving back from visiting her family for the holidays. Uh, There's an incident in which the little girl is injured by a fall caused by the father's sort of lack of attention. And then he takes his wife and daughter to a hospital where they then disappear. And everyone at the hospital from that point forward seems to be participating in a conspiracy in which they're pretending that his wife and daughter never existed. Uh, And then, of course, there are many twists and turns. There's sort of the implication that there is some sort of illicit organ trading going on at this hospital and that they might just be like kidnapping people and disappearing them and through a very well-organized machine. But if we're going to go ahead and talk about the movie, we have to reveal the twist, which is that our lead Ray played by Sam Worthington is an unreliable narrator. And in fact, his wife and daughter have been dead since the fall. Uh, and everything that happened after that is his delusion. All hour and, and however many minutes of it. I have to say, I forgot the twist existed. <laughs> I read this script, you know, six, seven years ago, and I remembered not liking it. I re- uh, in fact, my coverage that I wrote of it, I did connect it to Flight Plan which was a very similar movie that came out around 2006 or 2007, or at least a a movie that had one similar conceit, which is, you know, Jodie Foster is on this flight. uh, And then her daughter disappears and everyone's like, you never had a daughter. There's no proof you ever had a daughter, Jodie Foster. And it turns (laughs) out to be like evil pilot, Sean Bean, who's sort of in on it because of some reason having to do with Jodie Foster's job. But, this movie came, you know, the script must have been shortly thereafter. And while I was watching this, and I was actually watching it and reading the script at the same time, because I wanted to kind of talk about some of the discrepancies and things that might have happened in that sort of change uh between this, you know, 15 year old uh, script and the film adaptation. And while I was doing that, I was remembering the film as having a triumphant, very standard action film uh, ending. Uh, as we find out in the film, of course, and this is in the script, I just forgot, you know, he has been uh, delusional this whole time. But in my memory of this movie, I remembered him actually like coming out as a heroic action victor over this organ trafficking hospital. And all of my notes are written from that perspective where I'm like, God, I wish this movie didn't make it so obvious that Ray is not an unreliable narrator. He seemed like a much more unreliable narrator in the script and you're never actually really (laughs) sure what it is until he (laughs) succeeds. But that's not what happens in this movie (laughs) at all.
2: I was more
0: wondering whether or not the wife and kid actually existed.
2: Yeah, I was too.
0: Because there's a very obvious break with reality when the daughter falls and then he hits his head. Yeah. The movie kind of like clearly marks it right there. Like everything from here on is questionable. Yeah, exactly. But I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that had happened years in the past or something. Like I thought it was up in the air whether or not those two people exist in the real world or just in his head. So I saw the kind of fight club twist coming. I just did not expect the reveal that does happen, which is that he's just sort of like joyriding around with his dead wife in the trunk.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which kind of like makes him a weird creep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Respect. yeah. But I think there is a stretch of the film where it could have been something completely or a lot more interesting than what it ends up being. Like, it is a psych thriller who done it kind of. It's like, did the hospital kill his wife or did he kill his wife? Yeah. That line of thinking is very trashy and it's handled very cheaply. But it, it is kind of fun. There are, like, some moments that are, like, really over the top towards the end when he tries to, like, bust the organ harvesting ring. Oh, yeah. But it's not as interesting as early on where... The hospital is this sort of like Kafka bureaucracy nightmare. Yeah. Where they're just trying to fill out paperwork. Like, this is before his wife and kid disappear. And, like, every interaction he has with the hospital is so sinister and convoluted. Um, I actually found that, like, the closest the movie is to being smart about something. Uh, It reminded me a little bit of Lucky, which we talked about last year, how, like, the response to a woman being terrorized by, like, a male home invader is just bungled by this, like, endless kafka bureaucracy that comes in and like just makes everything surreally awful and ineffectual that stretch was actually like i was like whoa maybe this movie has a lot more on its mind than i thought and then once the wife and kid disappear that's kind of out the window and just becomes like a conspiracy thriller so i don't know i kind of wish it had like stuck to the kafka stuff and then once that went away i had to like readjust and be like well we're not going to get that but we will get scenes of Sam Worthington jabbing adrenaline into his thigh so he oh, can go into beast God mode and overthrow this hospital. I was like, he's yeah. got
2: caffeine, adrenaline, and alcohol all running through his system. <laughs> he is fucked. It
0: was like a scene out of Crank.
2: Yeah, it was.
1: So I actually went ahead and put together a little quiz to see how y'all would feel or what you thought might have been changed between the script and the film.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: Because I thought that might be a fun little exercise. Yeah. It doesn't sound like anyone's very enthusiastic. But no, we're let's go do for it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we have Dr. Bertram, who's played by Stephen Tobolowsky in this movie. And in the film, he diagnoses Perry as having a fracture along the distal radius of her arm. Do you think that that is the same as the diagnosis in the script?
2: Uh, No. I'm gonna say
1: yes. Uh, the answer is no. It's the anterior <laughs> radius as Ooh. opposed to the distal radius <laughs> in the script. Why change that? <laughs>
2: because they they probably did research to be like, oh, that actually isn't a reasonable injury for this thing. Yeah. Because for some reason we need this realistic medical diagnosis. accuracy.
1: Yeah. So So there's some things that seem to have been sort of temporally changed as well. This is a movie where it is sort of strange that at no point is our lead able to pull out a smartphone and be like, these are my, you know, wife and daughter. Okay. Or here's a, here are more photos of them than just this one I keep in my wallet. And I think that that is a holdover from the fact that this script, you know, circa 2007, predates that sort of technology. But what I'll say next is that that leads into my question. So in the script, when they're coming back from Thanksgiving, uh, they're talking to Perry about what she wants for Christmas. And Perry expresses this fascination with snakes um, and that she wants one for Christmas. And later when she's in the ER, Dr. Bertram talks about how his granddaughter likes horses. She likes uh, horses and someone called Blank. And this is a 2007 era teen heartthrob. Who do you think was included in the script?
0: Robert Pattinson.
1: Mm. Was it A. <laughs> Zac Efron? B. Justin Bieber. I C, was gonna say Justin. Shia without even
2: Hearing the answers, but
1: <laughs> was it D. Corbin Blue or E. Daniel Radcliffe? Oh,
2: dang. You added D-Rad in there. Yeah, I was going to say, we're both going Radcliffe now.
1: It was D, Corbin Blue.
0: Oh. Who the fuck is
2: that? Yeah, we do know. He is this.
1: the best friend of Zac Efron in the, the high school musical movies.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: Definite porn star name there, by the way. Yeah. Uh, he has gone on to some success. Uh, he is notably one of the only people of color in those movies. And... I think that that places this in a very particular point in time that matches the script. But there's other things that are still happening. Like, we talked about how nobody has a smartphone. I don't know what device a child might be listening to music on in the year of our Lord 2019 that required batteries. (laughs) Like that wasn't rechargeable, that required batteries. That seems like a very strange thing. That's not what she's listening to in the script. And the script specific mention is made of Radio Disney, which I find to be very fascinating as far as it's like, okay, there's no sequence in the script in which the family sings together or that Joanne is like, Perry might be too old for the song, sing a rainbow. None of that. The script just mentions that at one point, Ray turns up the music, which is on Radio Disney, which by 2019, when this movie came out, had been largely passe, and you might or might not be surprised to learn, has actually shut down. What?
2: I am yeah, surprised. Yeah, as of
1: April 2021, Radio Disney no longer exists. Wow. Kids Bop still going strong. Uh, My third question. All right. So Bruce the Orderly, who in the script is I. oh, shit. Well, we'll just leave off this last... I said too much. All right, so originally my question was, when Bruce the orderly picks up Perry at her bedside, he says to keep her arms and legs inside the vehicle. In the script, does he say, A, the same thing? B, your chariot awaits, lady. C, we're late, we're late for a very important date? Or, originally answer D was that Bruce is not in the script, but I already gave away that he is. Does he say... <laughs> Keep your arms and legs inside of the vehicle? Does he say, your chariot awaits, milady, Or does he say, we're late, we're late for a very important date?
0: I like the Alice in Wonderland reference, considering this is like a through the rabbit hole yeah. movie.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, my lady, because it's that cringe era.
1: You would be correct. Oh it is, gosh. your chariot awaits, milady. Gross. milady. And my final question is that Ray says in the film that he was self-employed before his current employment at the hardware store. And the script was his old job that he was A, a cop, B, a firefighter, C, a paramedic, or D, he was still self-employed in the script as well. Cop and paramedic make the most sense to me. I was going to say he um, seems
2: a little cop-like. Paramedic does not make sense given his handling of a head trauma.
0: <laughs> Let's go with cop because um he is a psychopathic murderer, yeah, user of women. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: All right, remember this is two thousand and seven.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: all
1: right,
0: he just feels like a cop. Is all he I'm saying.
4: We're still like
1: going to say cop. Yeah, he was a New York City. Firefighter. Oh, oh yeah, because it's what 2007. A yeah. He's a hero.
2: I was gonna guess that he was like a soldier because they do that whole like soldier commercial in the like waiting room. and I was like, oh god, is this like a PTSD thing?
1: In the script, uh it shows Price's Right and later unnamed soap operas. Just, uh just to throw that out there, that's none of that. None of that seems to mean anything to the script. Yeah, it's that's a just weird a choice. Kind of placeholder.
0: Does the script maintain the original ending where he is a psychopathic murderer of women?
1: Yes, but that's not what I remembered. And that's why I was like writing my notes for the whole thing from this point of view of like, obviously he's the hero. Because the thing about it is that the film, I mean, rather the script is much more centered around him being an unreliable narrator. There's more instances of it early on. And I think that there's also a lot that's really cut out of the opening that says something about the like relationship between the characters and kind of sets it up so that there's more like discord between them. So they get to the rest stop at five minutes into the movie, but it's actually on page nine of the script. So they already talk about the way that Ray was married before. At the beginning of the film, when they're in the car, that doesn't come out at the hospital, which I think that's the best place to put that reveal. Is where they do put it. Uh, it makes more sense for it to come later, like that. Yeah. They also mention that Joanne's parents are still hung up on her high school boyfriend, uh, and her father still, or her boyfriend's father still works with Joanne's father, and it also establishes. That Ray has a younger brother named Mike, who um, they talk about inviting for Christmas, but that he rides, quote, a donor motorcycle, and that he loves to stare at Joanne's ass in her Santa's Little Helper outfit. Uh, And we also establish that Ray is in the middle of an attempt to quit smoking. So in the script, it's actually not that he buys the alcohol at the rest stop or maybe does, maybe doesn't. The film, I think it comes down on, he probably did, but it is left intentionally sort of ambiguous. And there is a reference to Ray having a past drinking problem, but it's the smoking that he's more tempted by. Uh, And he doesn't get any smokes. So, he doesn't drink the alcohol in this, um, even if he buys it, because he spills it everywhere. And I just think that this was also a wise choice. I think that the writing about the quitting smoking is very reflective of a writer who had maybe had some trouble quitting smoking. But drinking is just yeah. more cinematic as an addiction.
0: Well, usually smoking is like a gateway to harder shit. In yeah. movies. like... If someone is an ex addict and they don't smoke, someone trying to tempt them will start with the cigarette, and like as soon as they smoke it, you know, two scenes later they're doing cocaine and having like two scenes choke later
2: they're turned into <laughs> donkeys. And
0: <laughs> I was thinking specifically of Basic Instinct just now because we just talked about it, but um, instead, yeah, a Pinocchio I, yeah, reference.
2: That was a Pinocchio <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, there's a whole spectrum of media out there
4: <laughs>
0: that might cover all of it, actually.
1: To circle back on the drinking thing real quick, I get what you're saying about it being kind of a shorthand towards a temptation to tumble down the slippery slope back into Vice. Uh, but I think that like drinking has this sort of external policing element of it, too um where you're policed for drinking by society whereas when you're smoking you know somebody might be like uh, uh, do you mind putting that out or oh. do you mind moving a little bit further away from the entrance to this building it depends but on like smoke are. breaks are like codified into law still in many states and smoking is really hard to quit uh i know personally But it's not as interesting to watch in a movie. And the effects that smoking has on other people around you in the short term are kind of minimal. Like the potentials of secondhand smoking aren't as narratively interesting as like the potential blowback of drinking. Like accidents, aggression, all of that, which we actually see in the movie.
2: I was going to say the symptoms of being an alcoholic fit better with the story. You know, like blackouts, not remembering what you're doing, not focusing, being a terrible driver.
0: Killing your wife.
2: Killing your wife. Yeah.
0: I mean, doesn't Jack Torrance break his son's arm? Yeah. Like that's the uh, past alcoholism warning sign Uh that we get in that movie as well. Yeah. Anytime you break a kid's arm, you have to like (laughs) consider that a callback, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think so. So one thing that you were talking about to do with the the script versus... um, movie I had a real hard time with their argument at the beginning I thought it made no sense I was like I feel like these people aren't even in the same conversation every response back and forth it just felt like an out of left field response to the first person's thing I was like what are they talking about
0: you know what always stands out to me in like a bad script and I'm not really one to care that much about writing and logic in movies like, it's probably, like, my last concern. Yeah. But something that always jumps out to me when I'm watching really cheap stuff is, like, if the script is weak, you can always tell because everyone is always irrationally and loudly angry at each other in every line. Yes! Like, there's a lot of talk shouting in these kinds of movies. Yeah. And they start off with an argument immediately. Like, you don't even get Just marital bliss up. before it all goes to hell.
2: But yeah, that argument, like, I was like, what are they talking about? I wish you were fighting for things. We're fighting right now. Like, What? <laughs> I'm so confused. And just like right out of the gate. I was like, oh, this movie is dumb.
0: Is that a problem though? No, it's, dumb? it's
2: not a problem. <laughs> it was more just like, is this, is this how normal people sound? I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it.
1: So looking at my notes here, I, again, like I said before, I was remembering this completely differently that although there was the presentation, or at least there was the question, that Ray might have been unreliable that it came down on the side of him being reliable simply because the unreliableness of his narrative in the script seemed like such a red herring. It was kind of overstated. So my notes here are, uh, I like that we get a hint that something's not quite right earlier in the film than we do in the script. Although the dialogue between Ray and the nurse is different, The tone of the scene is the same, but it's supposed to indicate that something is amiss. Uh, It's a little too close to real life to have that full effect. I also, it feels like there's more that's being sort of played against him in the movie. So like the, the things that happen in the script that make him sort of doubt his memory of things are like, he remembers like a soda machine being in a different spot. And he was like, oh, I guess I must have just been mistaken. So it like plants this seed. But there's also more references to organ donation that are not just in his mind. Like we see this uh, weird exchange of like an envelope and a cooler between a paramedic and a doctor. Yeah, like outside the window. (laughs) Which... to me makes it seem like oh they're kind of making it obvious that there is actually something going on here
0: but he is already heavily concussed at yeah that
1: point. true true in the script those things are like you know it's the supposed moving of the coke machine but the reference to his brother having an organ donor motorcycle and even them explaining what that means, which is that they're the kind of motorcycles that are written and so dangerous that, like, all of the people who own them are sign up as organ donors because they're usually, like, young. Like, uh, we've all, I assume, heard that phrase before.
0: I have not. No, it I is haven't. crass and fucked up. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> Fair enough. But, but I immediately get what it means. And when he's in the waiting room, Ray looks at a magazine with a news article about organ theft Going on somewhere, and I, I'm being as non non-descriptive as the script is. Somewhere in Asia, <laughs> it's wow. Oh, like the, you know, it, it might list a name of a like an actual city, but it doesn't name like a a nation. As far as I remember, there's also all the stuff with sort of the mylar balloon, both at like the accident site and in the hospital. That sort of seems to indicate that there's something going on. Because if I remember correctly, the woman who actually works at the service station, it's like he sees her later at the hospital. Yeah. She's the oh, one who's having the discussion with the woman with that ruffly shirt who's like, are you sure you don't want to make your daughter an organ donor? Are you sure?
2: That gas station lady, she was my favorite character. I was like, she's got major large Marge looks and uh, is just sitting around painting. Love her.
0: She definitely knows her way around a smoke break. Yeah. she's
2: sure. She's got that energy very into it
1: i was going to ask you know at what point in the film did you realize that there was an organ theft actually happening and it wasn't all in his head because that was how my memory of (laughs) this film's ending went so i will ask uh were there points in the story where your thoughts about what was actually happening went back and forth
0: yeah before he went to sleep like I thought that the movie was like a heightened surreal version of like things that are actually frustrating to average people at a hospital, like the insurance documentation and the fact that you're, you're treated so coldly in your time of need because they don't have the emotional or temporal capacity to actually treat every person like a human being. Like you kind of have to be processed for the hospital to function that stuff actually felt like legitimately frustrating and relatable. Yeah. So like for the movie to make it like a, is he crazy psychological thriller later on, which I feel like as soon as his wife and daughter disappear, that's what happens. I was like, Oh, we're going back to that. (laughs) Oh, I thought this was going to be more interesting than that. So I had to like resettle into what it was doing after he takes his nap, which I can't believe they let a concussed man just nap in the lobby. like Yeah.
4: Yeah,
0: <laughs> but I honestly think that if they had stuck with the thing, I think is more interesting. You actually might actively hate this movie <laughs> because um, it it is conspiracy theory brain to like just not trust this institution and to think that they are like, you know, actively evil when they're just trying to you know do their best to save lives. There is one part that I thought was uh, pretty smart about making it clear that he has like brainworms and maybe this is like the last smart thing that happens in the movie, but he insists that they review the security footage to note that his wife and kid did go to the hospital and they keep showing him every angle yeah. on the security cameras and like, you know, physical evidence that they never stepped foot in that hospital that day. Yeah, And he's like, your cameras are just terrible. They they have these like 30 second lags and they don't show every inch of the hospital. Like there's, there's blind spots. And he's like, surely that's where my, wife and kid were like empirical evidence does not sway him in any way. Um, <laughs> he's just like committed to his version of events, even when proven wrong. I just didn't expect the movie to go in that direction early on. Like I really thought that the hospital was being used as like a, a metaphor and not like a real thing at first. Cause it, it feels very nightmarish and like dream logic Um, because it is through his perception, which is again, heavily concussed. It's just funny to do both things like to both, start where it's super relatable mundane bureaucracy stuff that like drives you insane and the person experiencing that is a full-on psychopath who's like lost his mind and like is violently dangerous those two things are very directly in conflict with each other and I kind of wish it had picked one or the other
2: yeah I think my first uh key in that like oh boy's crazy is actually just the reality shift after they all fall in the pit (laughs) is like suddenly he's like super dad and just like doing everything and taking care of everything after being like basically what his wife says is ineffectual even though it is kind of like lady just do it yourself like especially after he pushes her because you do see him push his wife in the pit and after that moment i was like Oh, so it was kind of early on, but then they started doing the organ harvesting thing. And I was like, okay, okay, I could deal with some organ harvesting. That's fine. And then at some point I was like, you know what? Instead of this guy is crazy or this is an organ harvesting like operation, the direction I really, really like wanted this movie to go into because everybody was like so like artificial acting, even though I know... That was from his point of view as an unreliable narrator, but everyone was so artificial in weird acting, that I was like, I just want this hospital to be aliens.
4: <laughs> like, I just want
2: them to be aliens, uh, stealing people's organs.
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: It's really funny how over the top his like heroic rescue is at the end. Like when they show the the, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. the explosion of the oxygen, all of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah,
0: the adrenaline injection, the like bodies that have been scooped out like ice cream containers yes. <laughs> and they're just like hollow because all their organs have been taken. Um, and then it gives you a quick flash of what's real. Um, you know this poor kid's body yeah. in his car that he like pulled out of surgery. The movie gets really trashy at the end. And I guess if it is going to be dumb, it kind of has to do that to justify itself. And uh, it worked for me more than it maybe should have. I I thought it was actually like a fun, dumb movie.
2: Yeah, I think once you really get to like the goods, (laughs) as in (laughs) scooped out bodies and you know gore and stuff, that's the good parts. (laughs) Uh, And unfortunately, you know, too little, too late.
0: And I honestly think he was entertaining as the man who's lost his marbles. Like He's like a name that I think of synonymously with just boredom, like just gray nothing. I cannot picture him out of a lineup of people, even though he was an avatar, (laughs) which a movie I recollect nothing from.
2: You know, I have not seen it.
0: I have seen it, and it's almost like I haven't. Um, I watched in the theater one time, and it is just gone, yeah, but he he actually is pretty over the top and like flamboyant here in a way that like kind of carries it, which I did not know he had in him. That was surprising to me,
2: like I said, the acting everybody's doing great for what they were given,
1: <laughs> which is shout talking, yeah, I'm a little surprised at Lily Rabe being in this, um especially because. Her role in this as sort of like Frightened Mom is very similar to her role in the first half of the most recent season of American Horror Story, which was like about, you know, Northeastern vampires, because of course it was. She's like Hollywood royalty almost, you know, and she has like a, a bunch of recurring gigs. It doesn't seem like this was a movie that she would need to do just a couple of years ago.
2: She just really believed in this untitled hospital thriller.
1: I just love her. I think that she's gorgeous. She really like made... I I will say, I will die on the hill, um, that American Horror Story Season 2 is its best season, uh, possibly one of the best seasons of television that a show has ever had. And she gives a phenomenal performance as a possessed nun in that one, where it's just like every scene she's in, she steals. There's so much menace and occasionally malice and like even more occasionally vulnerability it's it's truly stunning to behold uh she's much better than this movie but i also (laughs) don't want to really denigrate this script i think that there are a lot of changes that were made to it that improved it uh the writer alan mcelroy is from ohio and the original script is set in sort of rural Ohio. Uh, one of the things that the film does that's great is that it moves all of the driving action to sort of this isolated highway. Whereas in the script, all of that is on the interstate. Like they're getting off of interstate exits and everything. And I don't think that that really captures the isolation in the way that the movie does. Because like these out-of-the-way rest stops and these like hospitals in like places you've never been before. They're scarier if they're not on the interstate. The interstate's how everybody goes, right? And I think that there's also more commentary possibly on what it's like to live in Ohio uh, because in the script, the sort of head-on collision that is discussed in the movie, which is why that kid is actually in there, like the kid that he thinks he's rest or when he thinks he's rescuing Joanne, um he's actually like kidnapping this kid who was a real organ donor that in the script is a drive by shooting so like this shift to make it sort of further from population centers and also further from like the real lived experience of this author uh, also made some changes that both in some ways were better and in some ways were worse. Because I think that in the script, the establishment of the idea that this is a place with high crime sort of makes it more believable and conceivable that there might be some sort of organ harvesting, organ trafficking going on. Because I think that that is something that really does happen in the real world is that, you know, there uh, maybe does happen, but has the possibility of happening. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying that he's right. I'm just saying, you know, this concept that there might be more crime that leaves more unclaimed bodies sort of uh, gives more credence to the possibility that there's an organ trafficking scam going out of this hospital.
0: Yeah, I think if you wanted to set up that operation, you'd probably want to do it in like New York City, right? Like there's like so many people coming through that it doesn't matter if a few Kidneys go missing.
1: Yeah. What do you think this writer is working on now? Put the bell away. Put the bell away. Oh, <laughs> it's no. Star Trek. He oh, really? seems to be a staff writer on Star Trek Discovery now. Oh, wow. Oh. So, okay. you know, uh, it looks like he has a written by or a story by credit on oh. like four to six episodes. So I think that it's fascinating that he also wrote the original Wrong Turn. The movie, the 2000 film version of Left Behind, Ballistic, X versus Sever, <laughs> and Spawn, as well as Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers.
0: But I don't know, like, same thing I was saying with the director, like, you've heard of these movies, they exist in the world. This Netflix thriller from three years ago does not exist. Yeah. This is a functionally a movie that is still untitled and unproduced. Yeah. Even though it, it already premiered. Like uh, you would think this would be an anonymous writer who hasn't had credits before. I I just think there's like a disservice done by that platform, where like I don't know that the movie would have been discussed that much, but you could see a few critics on Twitter or something being like, "You have to see this fucking insane hospital thriller." Um, it's a little boring, <laughs> but then there's this scene where Sam Worthington jabs adrenaline into his thigh, and then uh, like
4: four shots, of and then steals
0: a patient out of surgery uh, and drives off with him, laughing maniacally about his heroism. Like, like I could see some word of mouth around, like vulgar autors giving this movie life, even if it was just to make fun of it. Uh, But because it appeared on Netflix, it's just, like, totally anonymous. And it's something that you watch while you fold your laundry, which it might even be what I did. Maybe. (laughs) Don't remember because uh, it's been (laughs) a few days. And I'm amazed that I had the title written down at this point because that was a struggle. It was just more fun than I expected based on that milieu. Like It's like, oh, I wonder if there are, like, movies that fall into this, like, direct-to-video trash psych thriller that are like actually entertaining because I've seen my fair share of them usually because Nick Cage is in them that are like completely disposable and like actually don't have anything to offer. And this movie actually does have memorable scenes and moments. I don't want to overhype it or anything, but I would rate it like a three star experience. Like I found it satisfying and kind of ridiculous in the right ways. Like if it's going to be dumb, it kind of has to be ridiculous and it, it hits that metric. I just don't think it's like good for that writer or that director that they're making direct to Netflix movies, considering that they've been producing like actual films that exist yeah. For decades now.
2: I mean, at least in terms of being a writer, I understand. Like that's not a that's not a high paying job. I understand wanting to take that Netflix paycheck and run. Yeah. As a director, I'm just kinda of like, yeah, you make movies like people have heard of. I I don't know.
0: I mean, basically the only money that's out there to get stuff done is like the really big IP yeah. mostly owned by Disney. And then you have all these like streaming platforms that need content all of the time. Yeah. And like produce a lot of stuff. Um and there's just no way for most of it to be remembered. So I don't know. It, it it's gotta be frustrating to like work really hard on something and it just like choof. It's gone yeah. until three jackasses uh, bring it back up on a podcast to call it
4: down. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I think part of it uh, is it's a competently made film, but like, I wouldn't say they worked that hard. Like, they didn't do like super <laughs> interesting things. Like, it just seems kind of like this is a paycheck. Uh, yeah, in my head definitely. Yeah, <laughs> like I could understand if it's something like real weird and just straight lost in the shuffle. I mean, I feel like there's probably a lot of, like, other, like, streaming services originals. Like, I feel like Shudder now is just coming out with them one after another after another. Like, and I'm sure a lot of those, like, people put, like, hardcore Everett into and they're just kind of, like, blended into the background, you know?
0: I'm going to be honest. I think most of those are pretty bad, too. They are. there are exceptions, (laughs) but for the most part, they're pretty bland in the same way. They are.
2: But at least there, like, it doesn't necessarily just feel like just a paycheck, I feel like. You know, I feel like people make weirdo stuff for those sorts of original things. So it makes you kind of wonder, like, is there weirdo stuff in Netflix somewhere in the bowels? I don't know.
0: I've seen good straight to Netflix thrillers before. I really like the movie Cam from a few years ago. I think that's like a genuinely great film. Oh, yeah. I don't think it was like well served by being on that platform. And I think it's one of those movies that probably premiered at a festival and was, like, genuinely interesting and got sucked up by Netflix and then dumped there unceremoniously. Did not build an audience because it didn't have a theatrical rollout. And um, unless you're someone who seeks out laptop-framed um, erotic thrillers like I would, uh, it functionally doesn't exist just as much as this one, does it? I don't think this, like, model serves these these films very well.
2: No.
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to generate buzz around them. If something isn't available for like a limited time in a movie theater or, you know, for rental before it goes to a streaming service, it's almost like there's no incentive to watch it quickly and participate in sort of the water cooler be that in person or digitally.
0: Yeah, like that movie Fresh I was talking about on Hulu, like it probably was on a few like what's new to streaming this week articles. The weekend it came out, but even now, like, a week later since its premiere, I feel like it has no impact whatsoever. And this is a movie that premiered to, like, generally, like, positive reviews at Sundance a couple months ago.
2: Yeah, it's funny because, like, people that I wouldn't think of watching movies like that have watched it and been like, Ali, you should watch that. Sometimes they, like, hit the mark and sometimes they just fizzle out and you don't hear anybody talk about them.
0: Yeah, but they found that on the splash page, I'm guessing, like suggested yeah. viewing on Hulu for that week. But yeah. the next week when there's another thriller that they overpaid for out of a festival or, you know, dumped out of like Fox Searchlight development since Disney bought them out, which they do a lot lately. It's just gone. <laughs> if someone didn't text you about it in that first week, they'll never text you about it because it's it's gone. Even though it's sitting right there all yeah. the time.
2: I mean, I was told about it in person. Oh, okay. My bad.
0: <laughs> I forgot people still had friends. Uh, <laughs> I've gotten rid of those <laughs> for the past couple of years. I know. I've lightened my load.
1: Well, I will say that I thought it was fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's a pretty it's decent fine.
0: thriller. Very silly. At it's points. a movie. It's Okay.
1: are you going to be taking a flight soon do you have netflix as an app installed on your tablet does your account allow you to download things to watch when you're offline well this is the movie for you do it (laughs) enjoy with our condolences i'm glad alan mcelroy got a paycheck for it i'm glad everybody got a paycheck everybody was working and glad to be working
2: yeah that's
0: the one good thing about netflix they have deep pockets those checks do clear So congratulations to everyone involved.
2: When are we getting in on this sweet Netflix cash, guys?
0: Oh, fuck that. We're going Tubi all the way. Yeah,
1: we are. It's true. We're
0: a Tubi family.
1: Tubi's (laughs) never had a scandal where someone was accidentally killed on set because they hired non-union labor.
2: Yeah.
0: I have no proof that Tubi doesn't employ transphobes. But I know that Netflix gives millions of dollars to transphobes. It's true. That's something to keep in your back pocket as well. We are a
2: Tubi family. It is true. We do want Tubi to pay us still.
0: It's also unclear whether the Tubi pockets are deep. Do those checks clear? I have no idea.
2: I mean, (laughs) I would still take a check from Tubi and frame it if it didn't clear. Right,
1: right, right. It's still a (laughs) memento. I'll put it in my scrapbook with my movie pass card. (laughs) Yes,
3: exactly. Oh, my gosh. (laughs)
1: Well, next week on the show, we are
0: getting slightly more prestigious. Speaking of Oscar catch-up stuff, I wanted to watch Jane Campion's erotic thriller In the Cut because it's on Netflix until the end of March, and it just seemed like a movie that I would enjoy. So I spiraled that out into an episode where we watched a movie from every director nominated for an Oscar for Best Direction this year. So there are five nominees, and we each picked an older film from them. So we're going to talk about In the Cut, and then four other movies from this year's nominees, and it ended up being a very wild batch of like genre films. So <laughs> I think it's like this show's version of um, award season prestige. Like we're not going to like try to predict who's going to win an award or anything like that. We're just going to look at you know this crop of directors. What's their like most crowd pleasing trashy genre movie? Is uh, how it ended up shaking out and in the meantime like boomer said our movie of the month discussion of tati danielle just went up on the website and i think it's a great read and a really fun movie it's a dark broad comedy about a very evil old woman that will make you laugh even as she does the cruelest things you can imagine
3: and we'll talk to y'all next week
4: bye everybody
1: bye Bye.